Welcome to another episode of the Reading Rebellion podcast. I am your faithful, most of the time host, Arik, and I am joined today by the lovely Margaret. Hi. Hi, party people. I'm back again. It's been a while. I had to, uh, I don't know, do other things, but here I am. I've been reading, I promise, the whole time that I haven't been here. Margaret is someone who reads so much that she doesn't need our app really at all. I need an app to help me not read sometimes is yeah. what I need. Yeah, I wish I had the, the same problem. Um, it's a nice way to like avoid responsibilities because like most people are like, oh, productive, you know, but then it's like, ah, but I don't really shower because I read. That's okay. Uh, you take showers. That's true. I do shower. <laughs> I, I would definitely say you take showers. Um, pretty much but, daily is, is what I've observed. But, <laughs> but anyway, today, um, the book that I delved into and then Arik wanted to tag along with is I read Animal Farm by George Orwell. Um, what I've realized in my most recent like reading endeavors is there's like a lot of these like classic books that a lot of people like were like oh i read that in high school but i just read to kill a mockingbird so many times that i didn't like read anything else in my high school like classes. english classes i just read to kill a mockingbird like six years in a row not that i was in high school for six years but whatever yeah 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 I mean, I I don't think I read it six years in a row. Part of me wants to say you might be, you know, exaggerating just a wee bit on the six years, but I don't know. I wasn't in your school. But I had the similar thing where, like, I switched schools. For me, it was after middle school I switched schools. And I did do To Kill a Mockingbird, like, two or three times because of that. Because for, for some reason at the school we were at, you did, like, that we both went to for a year, I'm pretty sure you did it twice. So what had happened is I like, I also, so I switched high schools and then I also like switched in and out of the advanced reading and regular reading. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So like I read To Kill a Mockingbird in advanced reading in eighth grade. So then, and then I, I think I read it again in ninth grade, even though I was like still in advanced reading that year. And then I moved high schools, was in like regular reading, read it that year, moved to advanced reading the next year, read it that year, and then I didn't I didn't read it my senior year because I I don't remember Yo, what I did. I did. But it it really doesn't matter. That is a complete side tangent <laughs> of my like how many times I've read to kill a mockingbird. Um it, but but anyway a large part of the point of this podcast is to delve into these things, these classics, these, you know, significant works of our time and throughout history and, you know, just see what we can learn from them. Um, and to me, that's really been the great benefit of this, doing this podcast. I mean, I think right now we're at 30 plus episodes. Um, I don't know off the top of my head exactly which number this is. I can find that out, but... Um, you know, there's just been so much interesting literature and, um, you know, nonfiction and even fiction um, that I've gotten to read and dig into. And I've really, like, 
been able to strengthen my reading habit again by doing the pod. So it's been awesome. This is number 38, believe it or not. Yahoo! So that's pretty awesome. You could listen to an episode for every day of the month. That's true. Nice. Yeah. And even like switch it up a little bit if you wanted to. Um, I, I do really like being able to read these classics, honestly, outside of a school setting. Because they're, I mean, and maybe this is just me and I know it's also a little bit you, but I definitely tend to be like, this book sucks because someone made me read it. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I like going into these books now, like with no preconceived notion, like there's no useless resentment towards anyone. I can just read and enjoy the book. Yeah. Um, no, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I, it is interesting because, like, I definitely do sit and, like, analyze the books. I was going to say it's nice to not have to do that kind of, like, analysis that they force you to do in English classes. But the reality is, like, in many ways, I am doing that kind of analysis. Like, you can see all of the notes I have in this book. Like, it's filled with stickers. I'm going to sit here and talk about the history, how this fits into the everything else. Like, what he means by this and that. What are the analogies? But just because... No one told me to do it. I feel really good about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just I don't have any of the, like, fuck you, teacher. <laughs> like, <laughs> none of that's behind me. Yeah. Um, I think what I found to be the most fun thing about this book, other than the book itself, is um, <laughs> I felt excited that George Orwell is a, like, kind of like a white Bengali. Um I was excited about that for you. Maybe you're not excited about that. I'm absolutely just like excited about that. No, okay, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm thrilled about that. And I can't believe... I actually... So this is the second time we're covering Orwell on this podcast. Ayn and Jules covered it before, uh, I believe, episode 11, um, where they talked about his essay, The Politics of the English Language, which is a great episode, and, and you should go check that out if you like what you hear today. But Ayn, I'm calling you out right now for not finding out that Orwell's dad was a governor in Bengal and taking credit for him as a Bengali. And to all my family that's listening, now you know George Orwell's not British. He's a Bengali. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He, he is British. He was born in Bengal and then shipped off to England to go to boarding school in Eton. But he was born in Bengal. And served. He served in the constabulatory or whatever. Um, that in... was in Burma, I believe. But there's a lot of Bengalis in Burma. My family, actually, my mom's side of the family, at one point, was in Burma with the British Army as well. Um, the whole family moved down there and then moved back up to Delhi. So, for all we know, they... George Orwell is related to me. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> it's like the Picasso is Indian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think that that is the most important George Orwell-based fact. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, other than that, you know, George or Orwell, one of the great political writers of the 20th century, for sure. Um, strongly anti-totalitarian. Um his whole life, he was pretty much an avowed uh, democratic socialist, which many people wouldn't expect, given how anti-communist his writing is. Um, but, you know, if you think about the, the ideology of totalitarianism and then the political nature of democratic socialism, I think it definitely makes sense. Although, 
that's getting that's something that I think this will actually be a nice segue into the next episode. Um, a book that Arne and I are working on in the background is In Defense of Politics by Bernard Crick. And I think there's some interesting parallels between his discussion of totalitarianism and Orwell's. But anyway, um, that's not what we're talking about today. I think the biggest um, difference in... Okay, there's a lot of differences. But the biggest differences that I see in the book that you and I are reading um, by Mr. Crick in this is that I'm very, very certain that someone proofread um, this book. <laughs> I'm not certain that someone proofread that book. No offense, Mr. Crick. I think someone proofread it. I just think they didn't do a very good job. I mean, I think the reality is Prick... Cr- prick. <laughs> um, Crick has really good ideas. Um, and I'm learning a lot from that book, but reading that book is like swimming through a pool filled with oatmeal. Like if you took an Olympic pool and you just filled it with oatmeal and then tried to do a breaststroke through it, that's kind of what reading that book, it's very dense. You know, though, I will say that the idea of a pool of oatmeal does sound like really nice for my skin (laughs) right now. We're dog sitting and I love dogs. I am... The person who finds the dog sitting like gigs. Um, I'm also very allergic to dogs. <laughs> um, so my skin is like, I'm like hella eczema-y. eczema-y. Just, you know, TMI, all of you people. I'm sure you loved to hear that. But a pool of oatmeal sounds really soothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it would also be hard to swim through. Like, think about doing like a time true. trial. Yeah. Right? I'm not saying you're going for a, a casual dip on the floaty <laughs> in the oatmeal pool. I'm saying you're doing like a time trial. Okay. <laughs> Because I'm trying to read this book to do a podcast on it. I've got like That's a true. week, maybe two weeks to read it. You know, it's it's not... Maybe it's, it's like the doing the like swim exercise though, where you wear like big pajamas. And oh, so yeah. then you like <laughs> build up the muscles. <laughs> you know, in, anyway. in Singapore, in the they have these tests for swimming. There's like the bronze te- or the survivor test. And there's a couple more. In the survivor test, you have to like wear pajamas jump in the pool, like swim a few hundred yards, and then take off your pajama pants and blow them into a floaty and then tread water for like 10 minutes on the pajama floaty that you created. It's honestly like such a cool life skill. Yeah. (laughs) I don't remember how to do it though anymore. Well, then I will not be drowning in the ocean with you Um, (laughs) anytime soon. You can't drown in the ocean with another man. <laughs> I could... Th- it doesn't have to be another man. It could be anyone. It could be no one. Anyway, I don't plan on drowning in the ocean anytime <laughs> soon anyway. But all of those little fun tidbits aside, I really liked Animal Farm. Yeah. I thought it was like an incredibly readable... um, Like explanation of how George Orwell thinks like communism will spread and how like a communism system will look like what a communism system communist system will look like over time um and i think it, what I, I really liked about it is i feel like you could give this book to like a fifth grader who's like a little fine with like some kind of like gritty things in there Mm -hmm. and like they would understand the book like they could read this book yeah which i think is really cool and i think that's like honestly a really complicated like ideals to fit into such a readable book yeah 
Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, strong, strong commendation to Orwell for that. I'm going to go ahead and say this is easily the most readable political book I've ever come across by a huge margin. Yeah. You know, and again, especially in contrast to In Defense of Politics, which I'm also reading right now. I mean, this this thing is like it's like reading a storybook. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it's very heavily based on, you know, what happened in the Soviet Union after the Bolshevik Revolution. Was it based on that or or was it his predictions of what would happen and what I, will come of that? From how I understood, like, the introduction of the book, mm-hmm. it was more of a, what his predictions were. I could be wrong. I think I could it have was, read it wrong. I think it was both. So I think, um, like, this book was published in 43, I believe, or he, he finished it in 43. And it was, you know, at that time, there's actually another interesting factor about the background of this book he was unable to get anyone to publish the book for a few years because at that time in the West, um, there was massive pro-Soviet um, sentiment because it was, you know, the the Soviets had started pushing back the Nazis, um, you know, and Stalingrad and all of those things had happened. So even, you know, the the left-wing people in, say, Britain had always been pretty pro-USSR and pro-Soviet, but even the conservatives at that time were pro-Soviet. So um, he couldn't get the book published until 45. Um, but anyway, having said all that, you know, he, he published this in 45. And I mean, if you look at when Stalin's Great Purge was, that started in, I believe, um, 1934. Um, so some of these things had happened and like, if we look at when Trotsky was banished, um, let's see the, the date of that, I'm trying to find the date. Um, so that was in 1928. So, so it was okay. like, I think like he took like the basis for maybe like the first half of stuff and then he extrapolated his predictions like after that of where it would go gotcha but a lot of it yeah okay yeah those on me then for not fully no you're good i mean part of what helped is that in preparation for this episode uh yesterday while making dinner i watched a bunch of videos about um trotsky and stalin and the um great purge and all of those things to try to get some background for this discussion well thank you for doing that yeah um cool all i i will be deferring to you then um no don't defer i'm okay. going to defer so into the book finally um but i, I think the off? background no no, no. Okay. i think the background is like a very important piece of this novel though so i definitely yeah yeah and any novel really i think the background is always kind of a important thing to keep in mind especially with the political books um just to kind of know kind of just think about and put yourself in the frame of mind of what the political like the world politics look like at the time recent events um yeah yeah because i think hearing you say those like the when trotsky was banished a lot of those things like do directly correlate to pieces of the book yeah exactly yeah so that makes sense okay so in this book you basically have this farm manor farm um, and it's owned by this guy, Mr. Jones, um, 
who's kind of an asshole. You know, they, they beat the animals. They don't take great care of them um, and so on. And basically, there's this guy, or this guy, um, there's this pig, Old Major, who um, one day, soon before he dies, he, he gathers all the animals on the farm and he says, hey, I had this dream, and it was of the, it was of basically the animals overthrowing man, and all of our troubles in life are due to the human race and, and human things um man is the to quote from the book man is the only real enemy we have remove man from the scene and the root cause of hunger and overwork is abolished forever and of course the subtext there is if you replace the word man with bourgeoisie um you basically have you know the communist rhetoric of the bolshevik revolution um so you know he he basically explains this um I thought another interesting thing about his speech was um, this quote here where he says, I have little more to say. I merely repeat, remember always your duty of enmity towards man in all his ways. Whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. Whatever goes upon four legs or has wings is a friend. And remember also that in fighting against man, we must not come to resemble him. Even when you have conquered him, do not adopt his vices. No animal must ever live in a house or sleep in a bed or wear clothes or drink alcohol or smoke tobacco or touch money or engage in trade. All the habits of man are evil, and above all, no animal must ever tyrannize over his own kind. Weak or strong, clever or simple, we are all brothers. No animal must ever kill any other animal. All animals are equal. Um, I thought that was interesting because it's kind of similar to the anti-capitalist rhetoric in again, those, those revolutions where they're saying, like, anything that was associated with the previous regime has to be done away with. So we need to melt down all the church bells. We need to extinguish religion. We need to completely remake society um, in, in this way. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, sorry about that. There is probably someone walking by the door or something like that outside. <laughs> um but yeah so that's basically the the kernel of this whole revolution and then he he talks about his dream and and this song beasts of england um that is basically about you know eventually the beasts of england will roam free and they won't be oppressed by man anymore which really becomes like their war cry so to speak yeah kind of like their I don't know what would you call it. What I I don't know what the word I'm thinking of is or the reference. Like a rallying War cry. cry. Yeah. Rallying cry. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how different that or is. Or like their national anthem, if you will. Like yeah. it's really like this this patriotic song about how their their day is coming. And I think like um of course to really kind of I don't know, like, dumb all of that down. Like, what the animals on the farm want is they feel oppressed by man because man works them hard every year. They plow the fields for man. They, like, man takes the eggs. Man takes, like, the children, you know, the children of the animals for slaughter, things like that. Um, And what do the animals get from it? They get what they think is, like, what they see is like a measly bit of food, 
you know, they get just like enough to survive on, but they get no freedom. They don't like, they aren't able to like enjoy the pastures. And so they see man as like this entity coming in, telling them to work and then taking, reaping all of the benefits from their work where while they are just able to survive, but not able to thrive necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so then basically Old Major dies, and, like, they go on about their life. There's a group of the animals who start really trying to build an ideology around this dream, um, and this song, The Beasts of England. Um, It really, like, brings all, like, this, this speech that... Um, the major gives um, to the animals on this day really kind of it like brings them together and it kind of unites them in a front against man they kind of all stand together in the barn and they're like yeah I agree with this like you're right we must do this for ourselves he really unites the the animals of the farm yeah um yeah, it's a good point. It's, like, he really, like, yeah, like you said, he, he really strikes a nerve with them. He really, like, um, sort of kicks off this, like, revolutionary fervor. Like, at the end of that meeting, they start singing Beasts of England, like, five times, six times in a row until the farmer wakes up and, like, thinks that something's going on. So Yeah, um, the all of the animals in the barn hearing this speech are very moved. They become very united towards a common goal with major speech. Right. Um, so then real quick, you know, I think it makes sense to describe a little bit who, um, or, or to introduce the characters who on Major's death started really building this ideology. So these are three pretty critical characters in the book, um, three pigs, um, Snowball and Napoleon. So these two basically go head to head and essentially, you know, Napoleon is, uh, Orwell's proxy for Stalin, and Snowball is Orwell's proxy for Trotsky. And then you have Squealer, who is essentially like um, a very eloquent talker, um, very good at convincing people or convincing other animals, and he was kind of like a, a friend to both of them, but kind of subordinate to the two leaders who were Napoleon and Snowball. Mm-hmm. So those are the main, the big main characters. I think it is important to kind of like look at the other big characters here um so just because they end up like playing a key role Mm -hmm. and i'll only introduce i'm not gonna try to introduce every character in this book um there's boxer who is a he's basically a literal workhorse um and so and he's kind of portrayed is this like he's maybe not the brightest he's probably not the brightest animal on the farm but he always wants to work what does his motto become like um i will work harder yeah is kind of throughout the book throughout yeah boxer's time in the book he will work harder he always um yeah will continue to work he's extremely earnest extremely loyal one of the most respected animals on the farm um and someone who really like gave his life for the cause so to speak Mm -hmm. um I'll, like, briefly introduce, like, Molly. I think Molly is kind of a really unique character. Um, Molly is another horse, um, but she is kind of 
um, portrayed as like very vain. Um, she really likes the attention that she gets from the humans and she likes like, um, I guess like to kind of, I don't know if this is really jumping ahead, but Molly is a horse that she, you know, they talk about never wear clothes. And so they, um, she likes to wear bows, you know, it makes her feel pretty. So she enjoys the bows that the humans give her. And then the rest of the farm animals look at that as like, um, you know, you are a traitor because you wear bows and you want to be brushed, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think Molly is an important character there. There's Benjamin, who's like the old cranky donkey on the farm. Um, uh, yeah, we introduced Mr. Jones. There's the neighbor farmers, um, the like human neighbors, um, who's Mr. Frederick. Um, he's the operator of the Pinchfield farm. And then there's Mr. Pilkington, which is, yeah, yeah Pilkington. Um, who runs the Foxwood farm. Um, let's see. And then the dogs kind of will become in there. I don't remember any of the names of the dogs. Yeah, the dogs are kind of nameless for the most part. They have yeah, a name, okay. but they don't really like refer to them by name. Cool. So. I think those are like, um, and then I will introduce Clover, who's another horse. She like, but she's much more of like a kind of modest motherly character. Yeah. Um, the book yeah just to kind of breeze through some of the main characters yeah no i think it's important framing for sure mostly i think like boxer the workhorse um and the neighboring farmers are important right yeah okay so then basically these these three pigs napoleon snowball and squealer set to work kind of educating the rest of the farm animals on this grand theory of of animalism which they would call um and essentially indoctrinating everyone um on the farm when i say everyone i'm going to continually refer to the animals as people because that's just the way this is written just assume i'm talking about animals okay um (laughs) But basically, yeah, so so they're doing that. I thought one interesting little note was there's this raven on the farm who is supposedly, like, in cahoots with the farmer, and he would, like, spread lies about Sugar Candy Mountain, which is essentially, like, heaven. Like, oh, you'll go there when you die, and it'll be filled with, like, hay and whatnot. Which all I could think of, to be honest, every time they talk about Sugar Candy Mountain was, like... <laughs> that old ass YouTube video of like Charlie the Unicorn talking about Candy Mountain that came up in my brain every single time Sugar Candy Mountain was mentioned. That's funny. As <laughs> it's hell. just someone going Candy Mountain, Charlie. Anyway, throwback. That is a throwback. That is a throwback. <laughs> yeah. What I thought of was just like, um, I, I took it as, like, he was referring to religion and how communists, like, disavowed and tried to stamp out religion in general. But I like the YouTube video better. That's a hilarious contrast. <laughs> I fully could only think of Candy Mountain. That's funny as hell. <laughs> like the dumb animated unicorns. Oh, man. Ugh. Long live old YouTube. Um... Yeah, for sure. Um, 
But anyway, basically what happens is the farm is falling into disrepair. Mr. Jones... Mr. Jones! ...is doing a shit job. And he goes to town one day, gets drunk, stays there, doesn't come back till late, and basically forgets to feed the animals for like 48 hours or so. Um, So eventually the animals just can't take it anymore, and they break into the storeroom... And, uh, you know, Joe, Mr. Jones and the farm workers come in there and start trying to beat them. And the animals basically just can't uh, can't accept that in their unfed and, and hun- hungry state. So, And especially with this idea planted by Major, right. where they're united in this, like, fuck the humans, we don't need them, we can sustain ourselves, we don't need a master. Right. Yeah. So then all of those things compound um, into a revolt, basically. Yep. And so Mr. Jones and all the humans flee from the animal. Or are free from the farm. (laughs) They flee from the farm and then they, you know, the animals have this crazy celebration. They sing Beasts of England again and again and again. They freaking burn all the whips and like you know, um, uh, you know, revolt, revolt. They're like, we must rid ourselves of man. Um, and then after a a, a few months or no, not, not after a few months, but so, okay. And then they rename the farm from manor farm to animal farm. And they come up with these seven commandments of animalism. Sorry to interrupt you. I think like an important distinction that happens very early on in the creation of Animal Farm is they almost immediately separate themselves based on who is more intelligent. So it's kind of immediately emerged as like the pigs are at the top because they are the most intelligent. They can figure out how to read and write and like, yeah, that's kind of it. And then like the dogs are second because they're the second most intelligent and then it kind of like has this hierarchy um, immediately within the creation of Animal Farm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that is an important that is an important thing to note. And even though the rhetoric is all about everyone being equal, all, all animals are equal. At um, the same time, they do immediately make the distinction of we're equal, but these more intelligent creatures will be in charge. Yeah. Yeah. We're equal, but you better listen to us, and we're going to be drinking cognac in the house and smoking Cuban cigars. But we're equal while you starve in the field. Sounds very much like communism, but anyway. I mean, the cognac comes in later. Yeah, but, that's true. But, you know, it is like that's... the immediately, as they're writing the commandments of all of these things, they've already decided it's the pigs who will come up with the commandments because they're the ones who can read and write. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I think they, they kind of also touch in that where... They try to educate the other animals in just learning the alphabet, but no one else can remember more than like <clears throat> like four to five letters of the alphabet sort of a thing. Yeah, I think like one of the horses and the donkey are the only ones who really were able to figure out how to read. And a goat. And a goat, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you want to read out the seven commandments? Yes. So the seven commandments that they end up coming up with Excuse me. Um, uh, 
the commandments were are written by Snowball and Squealer, the pigs, um, uh, on the wall in the barn. The seven commandments. One, whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. Two, whatever goes upon four legs or has wings is a friend. Three, no animal shall wear clothes. Four, no animal shall sleep in a bed. Five, no animal shall drink alcohol. Six, no animal shall kill any other animal. And seven, all animals are equal. Yeah. And I think another fun thing is they all, at the beginning, refer to each other as comrades. Um, <laughs> this kind of was just like a fun little thinking of all of the, the pigs and sheep. <laughs> ah, yes. Now, comrades, to the hayfield. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I thought, I, I just enjoyed that. Um, and then I think uh, immediately after, they kind of like start to learn that okay, the cows need to be milked. Um, that's actually always something I think about um, whenever people talk about how cows can just be let free in the world and they don't need humans. Looking at you, radical vegans. Um, cows actually do, if they're not milked regularly, because uh, normally, right, there'd be like some sort of baby animal consuming the milk, but... Mm. Um, if they're not milked prop, like they can get, um, basically their udders get infected. Um, it's extremely painful, right? They like incredibly swell. Painful. Yeah. I mean, doesn't, isn't it the same for any mammal really? Yeah. I think cows as like serious, like milk producing animals, especially cows that we have now. Cause they've, they've like been selectively bred to produce like excess amounts of milk. Excess, oh, excess amounts of milk. Yeah. Um, I can't think of the term, but there's like, um, yeah, it's like a, it's important to milk cows on a regular schedule. So, um, they need to have, the milk will be produced no matter what. They do need to release that milk in some way. Yeah. Um, otherwise they will get infected and be in pain. Anyway, so they, um, it's a fun imagery that they then create after the cows, like, are like, yo, our udders hurt. We need, we need, we gotta get milked here, boys. Comrades. You must milk us, comrades. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's the imagery of, like, (laughs) um, the pigs, like, um, have buckets and they use their trotters which is another fun little word that george orwell uses for like the pig hooves their little like pig hands as he calls them their trotters i wonder if that's like a british thing or what it sounds like something the british would say you know like one of those like funny like oh my putty winkle or whatever like (laughs) gotta get a five p for a freddo yeah exactly um I'm going to pretend that it's just George Orwell for this book using the term trotter. Um, But anyway, it's a fun little imagery to imagine um, the cows getting milked by pigs. Um, (laughs) But anyway, another like important thing that immediately happens with the cows have now been milked is um, Napoleon um, like kind of like the, the cows have been milked. Napoleon 
says, okay, comrades, out to the fields, get to work. And then someone's like, what are we going to do with the milk? Um, and then Napoleon's like, ah, don't worry about it. I got it. Just snowball, take them out to the field, start, start the work day. Um, and everyone's like, okay, cool. Um, we're all trustworthy towards one another. Um, and you know, the milk is gone when Napoleon was left in the barn with the milk. And he of course did not go out to work. Um, I think is another kind of like immediate, like red flag in the system. Yep. Um, but at first it's, it's, it is a success. The animal farm is a success. Um, the animals all work very hard, um, and they feel really good about it because they're working really hard for themselves. They have this, um, like immediate, um, increase of food. They have like massive, um, yields in the first year of hay they have massive yields of um alfalfa which whatever um yeah so it's like a great success they all like they work harder they work longer days generally but it's for themselves they feel and so and the yields are really good they're all like well fed um so they are happy and like very satisfied with the outcome of the animal farm yeah, agreed. I think another thing that's going on during this time period that is important to the discussion is they have these weekly meetings every Sunday. Um, I forgot what the term was for them, but basically they would talk about what they're going to do that week, what was going to be the plan for production. And they would also have these super lively debates and votes on essentially the law of the land, trying to form their new governance system of the animal farm. Um, but what these debates basically look like was Snowball and Napoleon yelling at each other um, constantly disagreeing with each other and over time this increasing animosity between the two of them because they saw things very differently and they believed in in, in different ideals like one thing that stood out to me was you know um, this idea of how to ensure their survival against other um, against humans coming back, basically. And Snowball really firmly believed that they needed to focus on sending pigeons out all across the countryside to tell other animals about the revolt and spur revolts all across all the farms because then humans would be overthrown in general and they would be safe. Whereas Napoleon believed that they just needed to focus on defending their own farm. They needed to focus on food production and, um, you know, training for defense. Uh, interesting thing about that is, again, that's a very clear parallel to Trotsky and Stalin's ideology. So in Trotskyism, um, he firmly believed that the only way that the USSR would be safe is if they, f basically that they had to foment these communist revolutions all across the world. Um, and that was what um, had to be done for, for the success of, the system that they had built for the, you know, ultimate conclusion of their revolution. Whereas Stalin was much more internally focused um, on remaking the society that, that was right there. So I thought it was interesting, like, how deep the parallels between um, Napoleon and Stalin and Trotsky and Snowball go. Yeah. 
No, that's definitely, um, it's really interesting, um, how clear those distinctions are. Um, especially like for me, like looking back at it, cause I honestly didn't like look yeah, do super deep into the history. Um, before this, it was kind of just like, okay, hey, cool. Like this is a book that I want to read. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, again, the context is very important and it is very interesting how clear those, um, parallels are um so then a another thing that happens in this time where snowball is trying to do these much i think like i guess you could call them like a more widespread political campaigns and sort of like um yeah more widespread political political campaigns and committees um and napoleon is kind of like "Hmm, we should focus just on us um, they've tried to start like an education campaign, uh, or not campaign really, educating um, the other animals on the farm. Um, what they end up having to do is kind of like take the seven commandments and like dumb it down and like really for animals, specifically the sheep, I think is who they do it for, who are actually definitely some of the dumber farm animals. Mm-hmm. Um, love them, not very bright. Um, and that kind of turns it into the motto um, that is seen throughout the book of four legs good, two legs bad. Um, and it's like the thing here is once talking about the sheep, um, once they got it by heart, the sheep developed a great liking for this maxim. And often as they lay in the field, they would all start bleeding four legs good, two legs bad and keep it up for hours on end, never growing tired of it. Um, and it was also, I think, one of the first things uh, that they took and wrote on the wall of the barn in bigger letters, like, is an addition, the first addition to the Seven Commandments written on the barn. Um, and then soon after this, they, it's apple season, the apples start um, ripening, and Napoleon takes and says... Um, Like, no, those are ours. Um, I think... Ours the, meaning the pigs. The pigs. Yes. Sorry. Thank you. Um, the quotes I'll say, the mystery of where the milk went was too soon... Went to was soon cleared up. It was mixed every day into the pig's mash. And then as the apples are ripening, Napoleon is trying to um, make the statement and kind of argument um, that the pigs need the apples. All of the apples are going to go to the pigs. Um, and what he says um, is, oops, sorry, one second. Um, our sole objective, our sole object in taking these things is to preserve our health. Milk and apples, this has been proven by science, comrades, contain substances absolutely necessary to the well-being of a pig. We pigs are brain workers. The whole management and organization of this farm depends on us. Day and night, we are watching over your welfare. It is for your sake that we drink that milk and eat those apples. Do you know what would happen if we pigs failed in our duty? Jones would come back. Yes, Jones would come back. Surely, comrades. Surely there is no one among you who wants to see Jones come back. And I think this sentiment kind of becomes like 
sorry um the sentiment of like do you want jones to come back kind of becomes napoleon's go-to threat um for anything that the animals start to question about his actions is he kind of was like knows that the animals know for sure that they don't want jones back you know he kind of sees them as like that is the smallest inkling of truth that they're able to hold and anything i say can be um justified with if we don't do this for me then jones will come back therefore it's all for you this is your benefit and allowing me to take all of the milk and all of the apples um and you guys will get less food but really it's for your benefit yeah 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 no it's uh it's an interesting it's an interesting one for sure and i think it's definitely been common in in the rhetoric of a lot of these communist dictators right like oh and and i think another thing is like i don't know if it's in that part or later but squealer the one who's really like you know the the one who's really good at like basically speaking with a gilded tongue talks about how oh no leader napoleon comrade napoleon is making such a great sacrifice by doing this for you you know he's it's so difficult it's so hard for him to go and you know eat all these apples and have mash with milk and not do any of the work on the farm and and organize everything for you people um you know it's really just preying on their the fact that they identify with this ideology um to extract labor from them in, in a very similar way ultimately to what the humans were doing um and you only see that more and more as the book goes on yeah it definitely just becomes more and more exacerbated the lengths at which um napoleon will go to both preserve the ideology and kind of i don't know man to use the like common terminology is just like gaslight the fuck out of the rest of the animals like constantly yeah okay so then moving on two two interesting things that happened uh well there's a bunch i guess the first thing is the um the battle um is probably worth talking about so basically Mr. Jones and some of his men tried to come back and um, take over, um, take back the animal farm. Um, And they kind of like, um, so so basically they come in, you know, there's a few guys, um, all with sticks, you know, maybe like uh, 15 people, something like that. Um, Mr. Jones had a gun and all the rest of them just had like sticks and, uh, Snowball had basically studied an old book of Julius Caesar's campaigns, um, and was in charge of the defensive operations. So basically what they do is, and I I can't remember the battle in which this technique was used, but there was a Historia Civilis video that I watched, um, that talked about this exact tactic, but basically the animals come out in a small attack, they send out a, a couple of, you know, geese and whatnot, and then the men start pushing them back, then the animals flee, 
and the men start chasing them, and they just basically lead them into an ambush. Um, they surround the men. They destroy them. Um, one of the animals gets shot. Uh, I believe it was a sheep. They tried to... Mr. Jones basically tried to shoot Snowball, um, grazed his back, killed a sheep behind him, and then Snowball took him out. Didn't kill him, but, like, you know, uh, made him crash to the ground. I think the the biggest kind of importance or significance of the fact that Snowball did get grazed by a shot fired by Mr. Jones is that that fact is taken and... What's the word? Basically, Napoleon will take that snowball's injury in this battle and re and I guess like twist it in many different ways. Yeah. Um, to kind of again, I guess, like gaslight the fuck out of the animals and the rest of the animals on the farm to make them question what it was they really saw or what had really happened that day. Yeah. And I, yeah, exactly. So so I think that, well, like, s- similar to that, they created a um, military decoration, animal hero first class, and gave it to Snowball right after that. So initially, it's like, oh, yeah, Snowball is great. Um, another quick call out to the whole, like, Trotsky and Snowball thing is that Trotsky was actually the leader of the Red Army and um, strongly believed in violence is one of the most important political tools um and was a pretty strong military leader so that's kind of i feel like the the whole like snowball reading caesar's books is kind of like a shout out to that as well which is interesting but Mm -hmm. anyway um to your point yeah over time they sort of twist this so so the part where this whole snowball and napoleon thing really comes to the to a head is there's this discussion about this windmill so Snowball basically thinks that the animals should build a windmill and they should put, you know, dynamos in it to generate electricity. And they can use that to have, you know, corn threshing machines and lights and heating in the stalls and, um, you know, create a sort of utopia but napoleon was was strongly opposed to it because he felt that the most important thing was just increasing food production and if they wasted time on the windmill they would all starve to death um so anyway over time there's like this really vicious debate going on and the farm is super divided on who actually has the right um do they build the windmill? Is it worth the animals' efforts? Because they understand that it'll take great efforts to build the windmill, and it'll be a long project. Um, yeah, and it's Napoleon is kind of like, he's like, yeah, I think this is a bad idea. The windmill is not good. It's not where we should be focusing ourselves. And then Snowball is like, okay, but if we do focus on this now, it'll create better outcomes in the future. It'll make our lives easier down the road. Um, and eventually it kind of comes, it comes to a vote, right? Um, yes. On the windmill. And at that point it is decided that they will build the windmill. Yeah. I think it's worth just talking about that just a bit. Cause snowball gets up and gives a super impassioned speech about, 
hey, we have to build this, you know, because Snowball had been working on, like, actual plans for, for the windmill. So he'd been reading all of these books and, write, like, drawing his plans in chalk in, in one of the rooms. Anyway, um, so Snowball gives this super impassioned speech. Then Napoleon stood up, said very quietly that the windmill was nonsense and that he advised nobody to vote for it and promptly sat down again. He had spoken for barely 30 seconds and seemed almost indifferent as to the effect he produced. So Snowball then springs to his feet. He shouts down the sheep who started, you know, bleeding about, you know, two feet bad, four feet good or whatever. And um, he really wins them over, Snowball does, because he jumps into another impassioned speech about it and, and how great it is. And then they were just about to vote and it was clear that Snowball would win the vote. And Napoleon stands up and makes some weird noise that no one ever hears before. And then basically nine giant dogs wearing brass-studded collars come into the barn and go straight for Snowball to basically kill him. Um, and so Snowball basically manages to escape just barely from these dogs who who tried to kill him. Um, and then... Basically, what happens after that is um, Napoleon announces that the Sunday morning meetings are no longer necessary. Um, in the future, all questions relating to the working of the farm would be settled by a special committee of pigs presided over by himself. They would meet in private and communicate their decisions to the others. But they would still assemble on Sunday mornings to salute the flag, sing Beasts of England, and receive their orders for the week. But there'd be no more debates. Um, so, you know, the animals were, you know, a little upset about that. Um, but they couldn't think of the right arguments to, to raise. Um, yeah, but it's, you know, it's, it's basically this moment where Napoleon throws Snowball out of the farm, consolidates his power, and kind of eliminates the only forum for open dissent in one fell swoop. Again, like Stalin. I think from here what's interesting too is since once Napoleon gets rid of Snowball, things happen much faster, I think. It really is kind of like a... Napoleon's movements kind of become much faster and faster and a little more extreme i feel yeah yeah agreed so another well okay so i think we were talking about how squealer kind of paints it as like napoleon is doing this great service to the animals so here's a good quote for that comrades i trust that every animal here appreciates the sacrifice that comrade napoleon has made in taking this extra labor upon himself do not imagine, comrades, that leadership is a pleasure. On the contrary, it is a deep and heavy responsibility. No one believes more firmly than comrade Napoleon that all animals are equal. He would be only too happy to let you make your decisions for yourselves. But sometimes you might make the wrong decisions, comrades, and then where would we be? Suppose you had decided to follow Snowball with his moonshine of windmills. Snowball, who as we know now, was no better than a criminal. Um... And, you know, someone says he fought bravely at the Battle of Cowshed, and immediately you start to see this slandering of, of Snowball and this re, 
definition of the history where um, Squealer says, you know, bravery is not enough. Loyalty and obedience are more important. And as to the battle of the cowshed, I believe the time will come when we shall find that Snowball's part in it was much exaggerated. Um, so that was interesting. And then another real interesting development is three weeks after Snowball is gone, Napoleon declares that they should build the windmill after all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And says that he was always on the side of the windmill, I think, starts to kind of um, put that in and say that, no, no, I never opposed the windmill. Why? I don't know why you animals would think I would do such a thing. It's obviously the right choice to choose the windmill. He even um, claims that uh, Snowball stole the plans from him um, for the windmill. Yeah, and kind of, it basically starts this, like, crusade in a way of, like, anti-Snowball rhetoric um, very heavily. Yep. Um, yeah, and that Snowball kind of, like, stole all of these ideas, stole the windmill idea, stole, like, didn't do anything in the battle. Yeah. Um, really starts to turn against Snowball and uses... Now, Snowball is kind of like, whereas Mr. Jones was the easy target point before, and he still is, um, now it's also Snowball that has been added to the list. Um, And then, so the animals start to build the windmill. And um, the hardest worker, I think, in this, like, kind of no question, is Boxer, the workhorse, um, who's kind of constantly like, I will work harder like, Napoleon is right. Um, Napoleon is always right. I will continue to work. And he's always like, please wake me up half an hour before the rest of the animals so I can do more work. And I will stay after by an hour of the normal work day to do more work. Um, yeah. And so he's the one who, like, does literally the brunt of the work to build the windmill, I think, kind of throughout um, the windmill's story um and he carries the stones again like before the animals wake up and then after the animals are done for the day um boxer the horse is working and working and working yeah yeah yep so then as as time goes on they have a really hard summer um uh, and year tons of work because of this windmill in addition to the food but because of the windmill, they, they had to not do certain things um, for the harvest. So the harvest was a little less successful. Um, fields that should have been sown were not sown because the plowing wasn't completed. And that was going to lead to less harvest, which was... So clearly the winter was going to be bad. Um, and they start realizing that they need things that they cannot produce on the farm. So paraffin oil, nail string, dog biscuits, iron for horseshoes, etc. And basically you start to see this degradation of the ideals on which, um, the high-minded ideals on which the farm was founded. So the first one is, um, he... Napoleon declares that the hens will have to start giving up their eggs so they can be sold in town so that we can buy oil and other things. Which, again, to uh, kind of just make the very clear example of um, Major at the beginning, the old boar Major at the beginning of the story talked about how um, the animals should never touch money. They should never trade. And then so now this is a directly like, okay, but 
we've now found without the humans, there are things that we need, the animals need for the farm um, that they have to touch money in order to get. Yeah. Um, And I think the interesting thing about that is they don't frame it as like a, hey, we know these were our original ideas, but we didn't foresee this. You know, we need to do it a different way. We have to engage with this in order to survive. They basically just, again, go to revisionist history. They say, hey, um, do you have any record of this resolution that we won't do trade? It's not in the Seven Commandments. Like, what are you talking about? I don't I don't remember that. I think you guys are crazy. Um, and, you know, they, they just they just lie. Um, so another example of that is uh, the pigs move into the farmhouse, mm-hmm. which was declared that it should be a museum and no one should ever live in it, no animal should ever live in it, and they start sleeping in the beds, which was literally one of the commandments was... No, no animals shall sleep in a bed. Yeah, the yeah. seven commandments. It was like one of the fundamental tenets of their ideology. But what they do is they go and they rewrite the commandment that says, no animal should shall sleep in a bed with sheets. Yeah, and I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I remember is that they kind of start to slowly change the commandments like kind of secretly yeah. overnight. And it's like, you know, suddenly, like, one of the animals that can read will look at the commandments and be like, oh, I guess it is. I guess I was wrong. It's no animal shall sleep in a bed with sheets. So they must have taken the sheets off the bed. And that's why it's okay for the pigs and Napoleon to now be sleeping in beds in the farmhouse. Um, Yep. Yeah. And it's just like kind of slowly taking and changing what the seven commandments actually say over time right yeah so then napoleon starts sleeping in the farmhouse i think another thing is he kind of now has like a constant presence of dogs um around as like his security his bodyguards yep um he also starts i think there's a point where they talk about like the puppies, there were a bunch of puppies born. Napoleon kind of takes and like secretly raise, raises puppies. And then eventually there are his guard dogs, all of these like um, animals that have been like, he raised them to be his kind of very loyal, like bodyguards in yeah. a way. Um, yeah. And eventually that happens too with... Um, piglets that are born later on the farm napoleon is like okay well the pigs again are the brain workers they are our future they have to come they get to come and be raised in the farmhouse um because they are pigs right yeah whereas the hens you know it's they have they have to start selling the eggs the throughout the book the kind of demand um for production of eggs kind of grows and grows as they decide they need more money for more things um so then it kind of becomes like a there's no like more actual chickens um growing to adulthood kind of an issue yep um so Another thing that happens in there is there's a big storm and the windmill collapses after they've nearly completed building it and they've lost all their food, basically, 
or a great amount of food because they've been building the windmill and then it gets blown down in a storm and they basically um napoleon just says it was snowball he's like snowball snuck into the farm and uh demolished it yeah well the whole rest of the farm was hiding from the storm it was snowball who came in and completely flattened this windmill so it's kind of like this continued like snowball is not even here no one has seen snowball but this was snowball's doing snowball did this to us right and then you start seeing this um essentially it's the animal farm version of stalin's great purge so um napoleon just starts killing people uh killing animals um even you know he he goes and he kills um he claims that Snowball has been Jones's agent from the very beginning. He was actually working with Jones in the Battle of the Cowshed, and anyone who associates with Snowball is a villain. Um, then he assembles all the all the animals and um, with his big dogs, and the dogs seize four of the pigs who had dissented before about a couple of things, um, drag them to Napoleon's feet, force them to. Uh, confess and the dogs rip their throat out throats out the dogs also tried to fuck with boxer but boxer just is a horse so he won that and then napoleon called off the dogs from boxer the horse with boxer what was that with boxer yeah interesting yeah i forgot about that part it's uh over here um, but then he basically abolishes the Sunday meetings, and again, they change the commandment from no animal should kill another animal to no animal should kill another animal without cause. And this basically becomes a pattern. He goes and he kills anyone who dissents to him. Again, this is just blatantly Orwell being like, this is Stalin, and this is the Great Purge. <laughs> We're gonna kill anyone who dissents. Um, and even people who helped him. You know, I, I think he did a good job of capturing that, that degree of of uncertainty and terror that was going on in um the ussr at that time because you know it was things like in the great purge stalin would kill someone and then he would later the person who shot the all those people was shot and the person who shot the person who shot everyone else was shot um the judges who sentenced the people to death who were shot get shot in the in the Great Purge, um, and I feel like there's a similar sort of vibe as to what's going on uh, here in in this book. So I think one a way to kind of really, I, I'll read a quote that I think really kind of, um, I don't know, highlights all of that. The three hens who had been ringleaders in the attempted rebellion over the eggs now came forward and stated that Snowball had appeared to them in a dream and incited that they disobey Napoleon's orders. They too were slaughtered. Then a goose came forward and confessed to have to having secreted six ears of corn during the last year's harvest and eaten them in the night. Then a sheep confessed to having urinated in the drinking pool, urged to do this, so she said, by Snowball. And two other sheep confessed to having murdered an old ram, an especially devoted follower of Napoleon, by chasing him round and round a bonfire when he was suffering from a cough. <laughs> they were all slain on the spot. Um, 
So forced confessions, classic <laughs> trademark of, of these dictatorships. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's exactly like the sudden purge. Um, um, yeah, a bunch of these animals who supposedly were in league or just had dreams of Snowball being slaughtered. And then um, somewhere in here, there's kind of a um, notice of the animals are kind of like, hey, like, wasn't there a commandment? Like, one of the commandments was to never kill another animal. And then, you know, then they it's another one of those. They look at the seven commandments and those who can read now see that it says, thou shall not kill another animal without reason. And so it's this, like, end part of without reason of, you know, okay, now it's, oh, okay, we were wrong about that, I guess. Um, misremembered it. Um, yeah, so the purge happens. They kind of um, uh, continue on with building the windmill. Food is short. Um, they're kind of, like, noticing that the days on Animal Farm are are longer. They work harder. They're fed less, but there's still kind of this ideal of, well, at least it's for ourselves. We're not, they still see it as we're not working for anyone. We're still a collective. Yeah. We're working for ourselves all as animals. Yeah, and it kind of shows like the, you know, the intoxicating nature of that ideal, right? It's a very appealing idea to the downtrodden to say, hey, we're actually all in this together. We're working for ourselves. Um, and you can kind of see their desire to believe that. You know, They really want to believe that. And they're, they're trying to rationalize that despite the fact that you know, clearly the conditions are worse than they were under Jones. And you kind of see this... There's this basically you know, a great part of the rest of the book is various examples of this same thing happening where... You see the high-minded ideals being thrown aside for personal gain and consolidation of power of the pigs. Um, Napoleon starts to rule with like a much more iron fist. Um, you know they work double time to rebuild the windmill with um, three-foot thick walls instead of eighteen-inch thick walls. Um, their rations are cut. The pigs continue to take like all of the luxury goods things like milk and apples they're starting to the pigs are now also eating separately in the farmhouse from dishes um yeah um another thing that happens is napoleon kind of comes and demands that he now be referred to as leader napoleon um, in that he changes and kind of starts to denounce the beasts of england um, anthem that they had and changes it to um, our leader Napoleon um, anthem instead. Yeah, yeah, they has ban written. it, in fact, the Beasts of England, mm -hmm. because, and someone asks why, and Squealer says, well, it's because we've already achieved that society, so what's the point of this song? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's really because they don't want the animals to remember what it is that actually started this whole thing um, as they're consolidating their power and um, realizing that being a human in that situation is really pretty good, you know? It's like, again, very similar to the party officials in most communist regimes where, like, 
you know, you start out with these high-minded ideals, but then, hey, if I can control all of society, you know, um, I can buy some pretty nice cognac and I can live in a really nice house. I can have a really nice car and uh, I don't really have to work very hard other than at politicking um, and making sure that, um, not really politicking, but uh, at cunning, right? Like um, making sure that I keep hold on my power um, and just hiding behind, oh, I'm doing this for the for the good of the, the, the collective. Yeah, and I think another thing that's interesting is it kind of starts to become that Napoleon is seen less and less by the animals, and instead he has Squealer coming out, and Squealer gives the speeches, Squealer explains what's happening, and Squealer is kind of always, you know, kind of saying, like, comrades, like, it is our leader Napoleon who is doing this for us. Um, another thing is it's revealed around this time that Napoleon has started making trades and selling goods and like from the farm to the neighbors, um, Mr. Pilkington and uh, Frederick. Um, yeah, and then the animals are kind of like shocked and surprised because of course there were, again, the foundational beliefs of um, we don't interact with the humans. We don't like, again, no trading, but like, especially like the, the humans are our enemies. It's the four legs good, two legs bad. But now they see Napoleon is trading with the neighbors and he's letting them, allowing them to come to the farm to take away their goods um, for money. Um, and it's again, Squealer is the one who's kind of explaining like, no, like this is, for the best of the farm, there's um, starting, like Napoleon is also kind of starting to pin um, Snowball as like, like, you know, there's like the week that Napoleon does a trade with Mr. Pilkington. And so then he kind of also spreads the word that this week, like Snowball is working with and on the farm of Mr. Frederick. So we can't like death to Mr. Frederick's because Snowball is there. Um, and it's kind of like a bunch of these things where it's, there's no anything. Like there's no substance to these claims, but it's kind of continuing to use Snowball as the, um... The scapegoat. Scapegoat. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. Um, so another thing that happens is they finally complete this windmill, um, after, like, two years of backbreaking labor, and, um, they need the electrical parts, they need dynamos for the windmill to create electricity, and they need money for that, so... Uh, Napoleon basically orchestrates the sale of some timber on the farm to Mr. Frederick, um, and they trade it for money. Initially, Mr. Frederick was going to give him a check, but because he was worried about it being, you know, counterfeit, he was like, no, you need to give me cash. Um, so basically, they Mr. Frederick takes away all the timber, and then turns out that it was counterfeit bills. So they get really angry, and then they say, okay, there's probably an attack coming any day. Uh, and then Mr. Frederick attacks the next day, and he attacks with, this time, you know, half a dozen men, all with guns. Um, and, you know, initially the animals are pushed back. They all have to go hide in the barn or the farmhouse. 
uh, and the men basically blow up the windmill. Um, they drill a hole, they put blasting powder in it, they blow it up. Uh, and then at that, you know, the, the animals go and charge them and, and manage to eventually chase them off the farm, but um, at, at great cost. Like, many of them die, Boxer is injured, a bunch of them are injured. Um, and at the end of all that, you know, Squealer declares some great victory, and, and Boxer is like, what victory? Like, all we have is what we had before. Um, and, you know, now we're all injured and whatnot, and, and Squealer basically like, yeah, no, it's great. I'll uh, read the quote from that, because they think it's it's good. Um, this was post the battle. Um, the windmill is, is gone. Um, the they that they referred to as the rest of the animals on the farm. As they approached the farm, Squealer, who had been unaccountably who had unaccountably been absent during the fighting came skipping towards them whisking his tail and beaming with satisfaction and the animals heard from the direction of the farm building um the solemn building booming of a gun um what was the gun firing for said boxer to celebrate our victory cried squealer what victory said boxer his knees were bleeding he had lost a shoe and split his hoof and a, dull, a dozen pellets had lodged themselves in his hind leg. What victory, comrade, have we not driven the enemy off our soil, the sacred soil of Animal Farm? Um, and then there's the, but they destroyed, destroyed the windmill. We've worked on it for over two years. What matter? We will build another windmill. We will build six windmills if we feel like it. <laughs> You do not appreciate, comrade, the mighty thing that we have done. The enemy was an occupation of this very ground that we stand upon. And now, thanks to the leadership of comrade Napoleon, we have won every inch of it back again. Um, so this, I guess, yeah, that's kind of just the, the quote of that. Um, and then <laughs> I think one thing that's funny is after this, they kind of celebrate what they see as their victory. Um, mostly the pigs in the farmhouse get really drunk. And then there's the next day of like, they kind of have this whole like, oh my God, Napoleon is dying. Comrade Napoleon is dying like the next morning because he feels so ill. <laughs> and then, um, and then slowly they're, they're kind of like, oh, oh just kidding like by the evening they're like oh oh he's probably gonna live and the next day he's just like oh no they're fine um and immediately napoleon like again kind of bans alcohol um after this which is just fucking honestly hilarious it's just like he's hung over and so they're like he's going to die <laughs> our fearless leader um but then that turns into napoleon starts to um demand that they build barley to make beer and they purchase and make trades for equipment to um like brew beer brew beer and then so then another um secret change of the commandments that happens is whereas the fifth commandment said no animal shall drink alcohol there were two words that the rest of the animals had forgotten. Actually, the commandment now read, no animal shall drink alcohol to excess. <laughs> yeah, so basically the pigs start drinking, they start getting living in the house. Um, you know, eventually... They all get really fat is another thing. They yeah. kind of like mention that all of the 
the dogs and the pigs in the house like start they're like really bulky you know they're bulking up um where the rest of the animals are generally always hungry starving um i think yeah i think the boxer is another good kind of symbol in this where he's been shot he split his hoof he takes a while to recover um but then they don't really let him fully rest and they kind of um use his own dedication against boxer and that boxer is kind of like i'm i'm aging i'm supposed to retire at the age of 12 he's like 11 now he's like i have a year and i have to build the windmill i am the one who has to do all of the work i will work harder um again kind of as his his mantra yep and that's actually one of the saddest parts of the book i'd say is Basically, as he's doing this, pushing really hard to get up the windmill, and this time Clover has been telling him, like, yo, you need to take it easy, you're getting older. He basically gets injured, his lung seizes up or something, he falls over and whatnot. Um, They They find him, the rest of the animals, like, find Boxer in the field, and he's, again, he's the one who's over the, over two years of building this windmill, he is the one who's moved almost all the stones. Yeah. So they go, they take him to the stall, they call the pigs, they take him to the stall, the pigs say, okay, we'll call the vet, they'll come. And then, um, you know, the the vets, the so-called vet comes in the middle of the day while the animals are working, and the donkey, the old wise kind of sardonic donkey, comes running and says, look everyone, they're taking, they're taking Boxer away, come see. And when they all come there, they're like, oh look, he's going to the vet, and... Um, that same donkey is like you fools do you see what's written on the side of of that truck and what's written on the side of the truck is um and with this i think what happens is um to kind of preface is napoleon kind of has squealers spreading the word to all the animals that boxer is going to willingdon and they have the best hospital around he'll be gone for a couple days but it's the best hospital they're going to do the best work for him they've ensured that they will give any amount of money to make sure that boxer gets the top care so then there's then the people come to pick him up benjamin who's the donkey is kind of sitting as fools you fools and has muriel a goat read out what's written on the side of the the um the vehicle, Alfred Simmons, horse slaughterer and glue boiler, Willingdon, dealer in hides and bone meals, and bone meal. And then it, um, a cry of horror bursts from all the animals. At this moment, the man on the box whipped up his horses and the van moved out of the yard at a smart trot. All the animals followed, crying out at the tops of their voices. Um, they're all kind of like screaming and shouting like boxer get boxer they're taking you away Um, they're taking you to your death Um, and then eventually you know like the the van kind of speeds up he goes faster they're trying they're trying eventually boxer was never seen again Um, three days later squealer comes to the farm and announces that Boxer had died in, a, in the hospital at Willingdon, in spite of receiving every attention a horse could have. Um, he, he said, Squealer says, he had been present during Boxer's last hours. 
in the most affecting sight I've ever seen, said Squealer, lifting his trotter and wiping away a tear. I was at his bedside at the very last, and at the end, almost too weak to speak, he whispered in my ear that his sole sorrow was to have passed on before the windmill was finished. Forward, comrades, he whispered, forward in the name of the rebellion. Long live Animal Farm. Long live Comrade Napoleon. Napoleon is always right. Those were his very last words, comrade. Yeah, horrible. Yeah. And then he also talks about, he basically says that there's been a rumor that, um, he, you know, he was taken away to be turned into glue, and that's a lie. Uh, the vet just bought a new van and hadn't painted the words. As if, like, ugh, as if. Um, but then, I mean, yeah, and then basically the at this point the pigs have really turned into an iron rule, so that there's one big dramatic moment where the pigs come out walking on two legs. So they start walking on two legs, which again goes counter to the original commandments. That was close. Um, they go counter to the original commandments. They start walking on two legs. They start using whips on the other animals. Um, they're drinking regularly. They start wearing clothes. Yeah. Uh, and they basically turn into humans. And I think the point there from, from the Orwell side is... Um, you know the or or what he's predicting is that the communist ideology talks about you know creating this uh, society of equals where the means of production are owned by the proletariat, but what happens is a small group of people ends up controlling society and extracting more labor labor from people than in a capitalist society because there's this ideology that they can use to extract more from you, um, and, and that's basically what happens yeah they kind of get to um a point where there was all of these promises of retiring age and pensions and then um they kind of get to a point where um that it never happened um they talk about clover clover was a stout old mare now stiff in the joints and with a tendency uh to roomy eyes she was two years past the retiring age, but in fact, no animal had ever actually, actually retired. The talk of setting aside a corner of the pasture for superannuated um, animals had long since been dropped. Um, they kind of also now talk about how most of the animals on the farm at this point um, in the story towards the end is um, no one remembers Mr. Jones and no one remembers life um, before Animal Farm. Um. Yeah. So, and then I think the closing of the book is basically the humans, or is there something else that you wanted to touch on first? Yeah, before the humans come in, there was kind of this scene in the book where um, they... Um, the animals come out uh, of the, the animals are all out working and then they kind of um, suddenly the attention is drawn to um, Squealer comes out and orders the attention of the farm um, to come towards the house. Um, and then what happens is they turn and saw they turn and saw what Clover had seen. It was a pig walking on his hind his hind legs. A little awkwardly, as though not quite used to supporting Squealer's 
supporting his considerable bulk in that position, but with perfect balance, he was strolling across the yard. Um, in a moment later, out from the door of the farmhouse came a long file of pigs, all walking on their hind legs. Um, eventually, out came Napoleon himself, majestically upright, casting haughty glances from side to side and with his dogs gimboling around him. He carried a whip in his trotter. Um, yeah, that was kind of like, I think, a really big kind of turning point. Um, and then eventually after this in the same day, um, they kind of go to read the seven commandments because they're like, isn't it that like no animal shall ever walk on two legs? And now instead of the seven commandments, it says that it ends with a single commandment, um, which is all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. <sighs> um, and they get the they re-brainwash the sheep to start saying uh, four legs good, two legs better. Yes. Yeah. So it's a full reprogramming. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then it runs into the human visitors of Animal Farm. Yep. If you want to... Yep, let's go that. through that and then we should close because this turned into a shockingly long episode. Yeah, we talked for a long time about this. I, this is a short book, too, so uh, thank you all for... I hope this was interesting. <laughs> yeah, we didn't just, like, drone on about fucking Animal Farm and everyone's like, yeah, thanks, I read this in 10th grade. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, okay, so there's a bunch of human visitors who come in and um, animals hear, you know, laughter and bursts of singing and they're like, what the hell is going on? So the animals decide to go in and kind of, like, peer through the window and see what's going on. Um, and basically, Mr. Pilkington of the Foxwood Farm uh, wanted to present a toast. And he said that... Let me see here. What's the interesting quote? Um, let's see. So he basically talks about how there have been doubts about a farm owned by the animals and how it would cause concern to the other people. And then I'll pick up there. But all such doubts were now dispelled. Today, he and his friends had visited Animal Farm and expected every inch of it with their own eyes. And what did they find? Not only the most up-to-date methods, but a discipline and an orderliness which should be an example to all farmers everywhere. He believed that he was right in saying that the lower animals on Animal Farm did more work and received less food than any animals in the county. Indeed, he and his fellow visitors today had observed many features which they intended to introduce on their own farms immediately. He would end his remarks, he said, by emphasizing once again the friendly feelings that subsisted and ought to subsist between animal farms and its neighbors. Between pigs and human beings, there was not and there need not be any clash of interests, whatever. Their struggles and their difficulties were one. Was not the labor problem the same everywhere? And then, skipping forward a bit, if you have your lower animals to contend with, he said, we have our lower classes. Um, and then, yeah, so basically, you know, the, the pigs turn into men, essentially. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, eventually the, the animals see the men and the pigs. They hear a big uproar as they were leaving of them yelling at each other. So they rush back to look through and they see a violent quarrel in progress. The source of the trouble appeared to be that Napoleon and Mr. Pilkington had each played an ace of spades simultaneously. Twelve voices were shouting in anger, and they were all alike. 
No question now what had happened to the faces of the pigs. The creatures outside looked from pig to man and from man to pig and from pig to man again. But already it was impossible to say which was which. And that's how it ends. Closing thoughts. Um, 30 seconds or a minute or so. Anything you, you want to add on this book? I hope this is interesting for y'all to listen to. We ended up talking about this for a long ass time. I thought it was a really good book again. And I thought it was like really put the fears of what everyone um, at the time, maybe not everyone, but what um, some people thought the communist regime would turn into and had happened within the communist regime. And it really kind of puts it into an easily understandable perspective. And I think it makes a lot of sense how this kind of really is just a classic yeah no totally agree super readable super interesting and um like you said just a really like i guess palatable way of presenting the information um and i think in reading this and then going in and looking at some of the history of what happened during the great purge in between trotsky and stalin it was um interesting to to see that in that light as well um so yeah i'd strongly recommend it it's an easy, quick read, honestly. A um, couple days max, and you should be good to, to get through it. Yeah. Um, one, the only, I, like, looked up, like, because I was like, there's got to be a bunch of, like, discussion questions on the internet for this. The only discussion question that I really found interesting that I read that um, is, do you think if he had written this book in the frame of using marine animals or jungle animals, it would have been the same? No. And the reason I don't think it would have been the same is because the farm and the production of things is very integral to this. Um, Whereas with marine animals, there's not really like as much of a concept of that. I mean, there's shrimp farms, but like that's different being raised for slaughter (laughs) yeah yeah so so i don't think so personally i don't think so either i do think also with that is i think the farm animals are like a i don't know i think everyone can kind of understand what a sheep is and really visualize sheep and there's so many of these like more i don't know like ideals around sheep and they're just easily understood animals also yeah you know it's easy to kind of put things in a hierarchy but that's it i think everything else every other question i saw was kind of like things we touched on agreed yeah all right so with that um if you enjoyed this extremely long discussion of animal farm drop us a line at contact at rdmr.io i would love to hear your thoughts on animal farm and your angry ravings about why communism is good sure tell me we can we can try that out or why you think communism is horrible and uh george orwell is a great defender of you know political freedom and thought and and one of the great authors of the 20th century i want to hear your opinions or maybe you just want to tell me about eating stewed pig trotters because you're a british person and that's the kind of shit that y'all do um on twitter at rdmr underscore io um a new thing that we just uh started is i'm gonna put a link to buy the book on amazon if you want it um in the podcast description um no pressure but just a heads up if you do click that link it it is an affiliate link so we'll get a couple of cents from amazon uh for that please buy the book using the link i want a gumball i would love a gumball yeah 
I wonder if inflation has made gumballs 50 cents. I'm sure that's like not an original joke also. I bet it has. I bet it has.